0: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, April the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this edition of Come On With It Friday here on Open Line. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever you want to talk about, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. This is a great story to kick off this morning. So the town of Bay Roberts and the Bay Arena Minor Hockey Association will be retiring Dawson Mercer's number 14, hanging it in the rafters in a ceremony on Thursday. So (laughs) this is great stuff. I don't think it's really that common in the world of minor hockey. If you have an example, whether it be Michael Ryder's number up in Bonavista or whatever, I'd be happy to hear about that this morning, but you don't see a lot of it. You see it across some of the senior ranks, for instance, but in minor hockey... Not very common. Now, Dawson, of course, has made it to the top of the heap as a National Hockey Leaguer. He's having a great rookie season, as we all know. He's got, uh, let's see here, 41 points. That makes him seventh in scoring amongst rookies in the National Hockey League. He's been the Iron Man. He's played in every single New Jersey Devil game this year. He's the only player on the roster to do that. Now, dependability and durability, reliability is a big part of how attractive he would be as an NHLer, along with his prowess as a goal scorer and and everything else he brings to the table. But his number 14 will be hanging from the rafters. Absolutely brilliant. Dawson says, it's pretty special. Obviously, number 14 was my childhood number. That's where I grew up. That's where I learned how to play. Goes on and talk about the support that he's always gotten from the community and the province as he made his way to play in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League and then on right into the National Hockey League. Good stuff. I love that story, all the bits. And of course, he wears number 18 now for the Devils, as does Newark for the Avalanche, both sporting 18. And the Growlers kick off their run for a kelly cup tonight at mary brown center puck drop at seven o'clock tonight and tomorrow night as they take on trois rivières trois rivières is no slouch they don't exactly get an easy matchup for the first round but they're coming in as a pretty confident bunch as you are all aware tongue tie friday let's go so today is earth day the first earth day was back in 1970. Over a billion people are mobilized for action on Earth Day every year. There's 190 countries that are engaged. So the origins are actually quite interesting. It was driven by an American senator named Gaylord Nelson. He was a junior senator from Wisconsin. Long concerned with the environmental status in the United States, but then in January 1969, there was a massive oil spill in Santa Barbara, California. So he was inspired by the student anti-war movement. He tried to co-opt that into concerns and public consciousness about air and water pollution. Because remember back in the day, it was, you know, leaded gasoline and the smog that was hovering over the major American cities and major cities around the world was really quite astonishing. So I guess the real spur for the American consciousness surrounding environmental concerns was when the a lady named Rachel Carson. She wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Silent Spring back in 1962. The book was read worldwide in some 24 different countries, sold over half a million copies. And it really did begin this push towards more awareness of how we're so poorly treating the earth. So, began in 1970, and there's some events that are happening today uh, in this province to celebrate, whether it be at the rooms and or other parts of the province, whether it be community cleanups or otherwise. And let's get into a couple. I want to give a promotion to the Marconi branch of the Navy League and the Mount Pearl Lions Club. They're hosting a recycling drive in support of the 284 Marconi Seal- Sea Cadets. So, it's going to be tomorrow, April 23rd, from 10 to 4 p.m. at the Upper Glacier parking lot, just off Olympic Drive right there, across from the fire station. You can also make a monetary donation, but it's a recycling drive in the support of the 24 Marconi Sea Cadets. And I know this is not supposed to be a PSA show, but if you've got some Earth Day related cleanups or recycling blitzes or any type of drive or awareness campaign, we're happy to bring it on the program for you today. Okay. One of the things, and this does have a direct relation to environmental concerns of greenhouse gas emissions, is food wastage. Because the amount of greenhouse gas emissions associated with farm-to-plate is extraordinary. We do know the number one contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in this country, some 26% associated with fossil fuel industry. 25% close behind is transportation. And a lot of that will be for delivering food. Now, the numbers are really quite staggering. 17% of the food produced in this world, measuring more than 930 million tons, is wasted every single year. In Canada, though, you think we would be very mindful of this. It seems to be one of the character traits of Canadians to be aware of these types of issues, but we don't do a very good job of it. Each Canadian household wastes about 79 kilograms of food per year, pardon me, the average Canadian wastes 79 kilograms of food per year. Okay. By comparison, the United States weighs 59 kilograms of household food per year. The average person in the United Kingdom weighs about 77 kilograms of household food per year. According to the most recent report, which is uh, 2019, 61% of food wastage internationally happens in the households, while the food service industry and retailers, they account for the remaining 39%. But 61% happens in the home. I try to be aware, and I'm... I'm pretty much the garbage can for leftovers, I will indeed make sure that we eat everything that we cook. But this does have an appreciable impact. Now I would imagine, given the extraordinary rise in the cost of food, that this has maybe been curbed a little bit. But what can we do about it? A few things. Certainly, when we talk about the reliability of some 90% of the goods and services that we need in this province, we import them. So, I've said it before, and someone who probably knows more about it than I do, if there's a pushback or something I'm missing in this sentiment, please let me know. We should pepper the province with greenhouses everywhere, absolutely everywhere, community gardens. As much as possible, because we can't do better with reducing emissions if the food is close by. Remember that concept there some years ago where you try to consume everything within a 100-mile or 100-kilometer radius of where you live, so for a variety of reasons. But it would be a food security issue, an access issue, a cost issue. We'd reduce freight surcharges when we talk about what's on the shelves in our cupboards and or the grocery store so i think there's a place for us to do better on that front we see government get involved in all types of spends and they will talk about doubling food production but that basically relies on the big agricultural uh, prospects or business models brought forward by individuals or groups but if we had you know the regions get together put their best foot forward the provincial government aware of what would absolutely be attained and achieved by peppering the entire province with greenhouses and maybe some large scale but certainly a lot of small ones that would serve as small communities and or pockets of the province so something has to give on that front i seem to think it's a good idea maybe i'm out to lunch but if you want to expand on that this morning and there's always room for the medium to large scale farming outfits even though we know that the super farms the mega farms has really made it quite difficult to compete really made it quite difficult to find a market for smaller producers which used to rule the roost roost and roost pardon me and if you want to talk about it let's do exactly that in addition when we talk about food wastage so, some 39% of the world's food waste comes from food service industry and the major retailers. This is done in other provinces, and it should absolutely be done here as well. We see the amount of traffic that's increased at the province's food banks, and even if you're looking to a church group or a community group for some support on that front, we should 100% approach. Every one of the major retailers so that when the date comes where they think it's no longer an attractive option to put on their grocery shelves, you know, those best before dates doesn't mean that the food is no good anymore. It just doesn't have its maximum nutritional value and or potentially some some erosion of the the taste, but it's still perfectly fine for human consumption. Every one of these retailers should be signing agreements with food banks, community groups, and church groups to ensure that before they throw it away, throw it in the garbage, it lands at St. Vincent de Paul or Bridges for Hope or one church group or some community organization that's trying to do their level best for folks who are being left behind. Let's get that done. That's something we can do. And so let's see if we can pull it off. All right. And of course, one of the contributing factors to what we're seeing uh, with the prices is inflation. Man, it all felt bad enough when we were talking about a 30-year high at 5.7%. Now... This month, 6.7%. 6.7. It's a 31-year high. Now, of course, there's a lot of political rhetoric surrounding the inflation numbers. And, yes, there's going to be concerns with uh, the prices of getting things distributed around the world. There's going to be global supply chain interruptions, the cost of energy and homes. There's a lot of contributing factors. And now we're led to believe that it's just one politician, one, one party or another. There's more demand and more money than there are goods. And it's, it's virtually impossible to have a clear understanding in layman's terms of all the contributing factors to inflation. But let's be careful that we boil it down to where we think there can be some solutions found. Part of it is inside the Bank of Canada. Part of it is the volatility of energy markets, which we have limited control over, if any. But inflation has hit a 31-year high of 67 Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Now, in direct contrast to Earth Day is Beta Nord. And I think that's a a fair way to couch it. You know, we'll see what becomes a final sanction from Equinor and the negotiations between the province and the producer, whether it be with the equity stake, which we currently demand at 10%. Whether or not that's a good idea, I'll leave it up to you. There's also how many jobs will be created and services performed right here in this province versus shipped overseas, whether it be South Korea, Texas, wherever the case may be. So that's part of it. But you know, this was long in the wings and hasn't been getting much attention until now. It's the concept of this, this field, some 500 kilometers off our shores, outside our economic protective zone. There is a UN agreement for the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. It allows us to go out there and explore and to produce, given the fact that we have a larger than normal continental shelf. But it does come with some confusion about the royalties. S- some people have sent along some very comprehensive and thoughtful emails, and I appreciate that. And I'm trying to get through them as best I can and as quickly as I can. But the basic concept is, someone's got to pay a royalty, based on this agreement, to developing countries. With the Atlantic Accord, which quite clearly states that the royalties flow to the province, we are the primary beneficiary, the province says that the international agreement at the UN has nothing to do with us, because the country signed down, not the province. So the country, the federal government should be on the hook for what might add up to hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties. Hundreds of millions of dollars. There's a five-year moratorium when first oil is produced, but in year number six, it kicks in at 1%, all the way through year 12, where it remains at 7% for the life of the field. So we are talking about significant monies. And it really does, in my estimation, and my base understanding of what's going on, this is a federal government responsibility. They signed that agreement. Now, there will be some racket, and there's probably going to be some compromise met But hopefully it doesn't come at the expense of our coffers here provincially. But I think that's a big one that's yet to be fully determined or fully understood. All right, I do get a little confused with some of the criticism. Now, you know, we have to call out governments and individuals and hold them accountable and demand transparency and all the rest of it. You know, all the catchphrases, buzzwords that are part of campaigning, but not so much part of governing. The whole concept of come home here, had it be pre-pandemic, it probably would have sounded like an excellent idea. Too many. But it's been so widely criticized. You know, whether it be the justification of the ease restrictions and or propping up an industry. But the industry is vitally important. It is absolutely a growth industry regarding hospitality and tourism. So I'm a little bit confused as to why it's so damned in so many corners. But anyway. That industry needs a busy season and needs it badly. We can tackle it from whatever angle you think. And, you know, sometimes when we're talking about the big issues, and we can talk about whatever issue you like. But even something is what might seem to be a small concern regarding rental cars. The problem there is that it's long been a problem. And now it's just getting some heightened attention because the rental car issue is a global concern. But absolutely is a concern here. I've heard from many operators who tell me that they've lost bookings and the reason given is can't get a rental. So I'm also told that there's a pending announcement regarding a rideshare application that's coming to the province. That can alleviate some of the worry or stress for the visiting and traveling public, but I think that's coming. Now, maybe you're doing some things on Earth Day to prepare and hopefully to beautify or to clean up your community wherever you live. But also interesting, we know the reasons that some people come, right? The rugged beauty, the people, the culinary scene, the puffins, the whales, the icebergs, the like. Mistaken point in some of the other national, uh, international treasures that we have. But icebergs are a curious one. Last year was pretty dry. Only one iceberg floated past the latitude of 48 degrees south, roughly just St. John's. You know, one. In years past, there might have been as many as 350 at this point. This year, about 20. Now, the U.S. National Ice Center, the Canadian Ice Service, uh, they do some aerospace tracking of the icebergs. You know, PAL's involved, of course. They're moving on in near term to uh, satellite imagery to track the icebergs but they talk about the lack of ice cover so the icebergs are hitting open warmer water and consequently they're deteriorating before they make it to the watchful hopeful eye of the locals and the tourists alike but icebergs all the way down one last year twenty this year imagine three hundred and fifty they are quite majestic we take a lot of things for granted imagine coming from california and seen an iceberg for the first time. It must be mind blowing. But anyway, I don't know if that's of any interest to you, but I throw it out there anyway. And in the world of travel, Tony Wakem, the member for Stephenville Port a Port, PC member, he's talking about the government's need to be more creative in support for the Stephenville Airport. Now, there is an extension of a $900,000 loan guarantee, but Mr. Wakem says that's not enough. It becomes a real whopping complicated concern when we know that there hasn't been any passenger service to or from Steamville since the since January of 2020. Now, Sunwing has announced a new weekly summer service at Toronto. That's going to begin later in June. But he's talking about the need to be more creative. What exactly that means, I'm not 100% sure. And Mr. Wakeham is more than welcome to come on and elaborate on his thoughts here. There was a million dollars in grants split between Gander, Deerlick, and St. John's for entrance routes. Stephenville didn't get any of the cash. The premier says they didn't apply. The problem there becomes the airport chair, Trevor Murphy, contends they didn't even know anything about how to apply or when to apply. Only heard about it after the fact. Now, I don't know if that's a... Condemnation on where that belongs. But anyway, it's Stevenville Airport on the outside looking in. So, Mr. Wakeham, if you'd like to expand on how we can do something for that particular airport, we're happy to have the conversation. And then there's the long-running concern about what's going on with the Diamond Group. That announcement just sounded so good. And sometimes things sound too good to be true. So it's yet to materialize. Apparently it's not dead, but it would bring a whopping big investment to the Steamville airport and surrounding area. And tons of jobs to come with it. And some industrial scale drones to be built on site. And still to operators in an airport. But it would be nice to know exactly what's going on with that. Maybe we can organize some time with Carl Diamond from the Diamond Group to get a better update. Okay, very quickly. The collaborative care clinics. Healthcare is, of course, on top of mind for so many people. In a joint release between the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association and the Newfoundland Labrador College of Family Physicians, they are warning that when we're simply attracting family doctors away from their clinic to put them in a collaborative care clinic, we're not doing anything to help the general public who need access to health care. They do also go on to say, and one specific doctor goes on to say, that the collaborative care clinics are absolutely the gold standard. So whether you walk in the door to collaborative care clinic and there's a doctor, nurse practitioners, registered nurse, social worker, pharmacist, dietitian, and you can do all this through Patient Connect NL, it just always feels and sounds like this is absolutely the way. But their point is well taken, is if we're simply moving doctors who are not allowed, apparently, to take their patient roster with them, then we're just orphaning a bunch of different people in different parts of the province. So if it's the gold standard... And I think we've made it a very so-called oversimplified issue with trying to recruit and retain a doctor. But, yeah, if we're just simply shuffling healthcare professionals around, it doesn't necessarily make things better. Even though in a, a, a standard-sized GP clinic with a patient roster of some 3,000 and a collaborative care clinic where there's still capacity available that might see as many as 9,000 patients... It all sounds good, but of course the devil is in the details but where the who the doctors are, whether they're new to the system or otherwise and look healthcare is as wide as it is broad if you want to talk about it. Let's go we're on Twitter, we're VSM up online, follow us there. Our email address is openlineatfiosim.com. Let's get a tune on the go. For a while, I was afraid to play the Beatles because I thought I might play them too much, but I haven't played them in a long time. It was today, 1964, that the Beatles scored their seventh number one of the year in the UK chart with Ticket to Ride. When we come back, let's do it. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number eight. Good morning, Adam Furlong. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, thanks. How about you? I'm
1: pretty good. I just heard your preamble there where you were talking a lot about uh, more small scale agriculture and and food security issues and more greenhouse production and all that kind of stuff so I thought I'd just give you a call and talk about uh, some of the same points that you were talking about uh, that I completely agree with and I've got a I've actually got a bit of a small scale farm here on the Bonavista Peninsula so I'd just like to talk about what we're doing and what we're planning to be doing. Go ahead. Um, yeah, so I completely agree with pretty much everything that you said there. I mean, the, the local food production in Newfoundland is is a ma- major concern, and the long-distance food supply is the main contributor to all of this. I mean, most of our food comes from elsewhere in Canada, the U.S., you know, Central and South America, and pretty much everywhere else, all over the world. Even if you go into a grocery store here and buy a pack of blueberries. It, comes from the Maritimes or down in the States where I mean Newfoundland blueberries are everywhere. Um, So I'd like to just point out one example of of how um, relying on large-scale agriculture and and uh, you know global food supply chains is a main issue. Um, Last year the biggest global almond producer in the world, down in California, uh, stopped producing almonds because of all of the uh, persistent and prolonged drought that California sees regularly, they just couldn't do it anymore. So they actually produce 80% of the world's almonds and that's done now, which, you know, might not seem like a big deal. It's it's only almonds.
0: Just let me throw something in there on the almond world. You know, I like almonds. But I think if we have a real careful look at almond production, we should be asking some pretty serious questions. It takes over a gallon of water to grow one almond, one. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's ridiculous. And so in parts of the world, we're experiencing significant drought and water shortages, period, even for domestic use. The almond crops are just out of control. Add to it hazelnuts, pistachios, cashews. The amount of water it takes to grow any of these products, these legumes or nuts, is out of control.
2: I know,
1: it's crazy. And and it doesn't help that it, those crops grow best in very warm climates where yeah. they typically have water shortage issues. Um, and that, that issue is present across most of our food production systems. I mean, the vast majority of everything uh, is produced in a couple of key areas in the world and, and shipped out to everywhere all over the world. Um, so what we're doing, I mean, we we currently grow a lot of uh, micro. He who's not familiar with microgreens is basically just a very young version of a crop. Uh, it's extremely nutritional, and and we supply a few a few local grocery stores and a lot of local restaurants with our microgreens. But this year we're actually. Uh, invested a lot of money into our farm. too. Uh, we added two uh, 16 feet wide by 100 foot long greenhouses, and we're going to be producing a lot of different crops like more mature salad greens, tomatoes, peppers, baby root vegetables, and all kinds of things like that. And and a lot of our existing customers are, you know, understandably very excited about that because they can get more local, locally produced food. Which, you know, I, I always try to, I don't have to throw in this example at a thousand times. I, before we started this farm, I went to the grocery store and picked up a pack of tomatoes and product of Mexico, which is great, you know, fine, they came from Mexico. But those tomatoes had to travel a minimum of 6,000 kilometers to get here. So, I mean, when I opened them, there was four tomatoes in the pack. One was good, two of them were starting to go bad, and one of them was completely moldy. So, I mean, as far as, you know, just wasting money, but but also those those tomatoes, all vegetables are living things. So once you harvest them, they start dying. Once they start dying, they're losing nutritional content. So, I mean, if it took several weeks and over 6,000 kilometers for those tomatoes to get to my plate, they're, they're, they've lost a lot of their nutritional content by the time my family eats them.
0: Well, I mean, if anyone has ever had the opportunity, and I'm sure many people listening have, is to have a fresh off-the-vine tomato versus what you buy in a grocery store. And I'm not criticizing grocery stores. They get the products where the major retailers strike deals. But a fresh tomato versus a 6,000-kilometer travel tomato, it's not even the same thing. There's it's 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 not not like it. And for you to expand, congratulations. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. The fact is we have enough demand here where we could add... Oh, I don't know, 500 p- percent capacity, and still not deteriorate your, your market or access to market. So we've got a long way to go here. I know the province talks about doubling food production, and you know, offering additional 65,000 hectares of land. But you know, some really tailored, region specific community gardens, greenhouses. Let's go. Let's get this in underway. You know, some seed money, pardon the pun, to start it up and then turn it over to the community. Turn it over to the farmer who wants to take it on as a full time job, to create jobs, to provide food. We've just, there's answers and solutions out there. I'm really surprised we're not grabbing them.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, we actually, um, about a month ago, we received. Uh, we're actually the first uh, Newfoundland-based business to receive a uh, Desjardins Good Spark Grant, and uh, they they took were taking applications last fall, and I uh, I submitted an application for that. It's a Canada-wide program, and they're only giving out 150 grants Canada-wide, and I honestly never expected that I would be a successful applicant, but I couldn't just let the opportunity pass by. So I put in an application and and a month ago they they let me know that I was a successful successful applicant and we're going to be using that money to uh develop a, a like a post harvest facility here on our property where we can uh have like a washing and packaging and cold storage facility so that we can extend our product life and and try to provide more value to our you know Eastern Newfoundland but especially our local community.
0: Well, I mean, I, of course, again, reiterated, wish you nothing but the best. And bravo to expand what you're doing on site at your farm. Good to have you on the show, Adam. Anything else you'd like to offer this morning?
1: Uh, yeah, I'd just like to say that that a uh, good spark grant h- program has been going on for a few years now. And I, I never even heard of it until this past fall. So, uh, I, like I said, I put in an application, and and we were successful. We we're the first people that, in Newfoundland to ever win that. But uh, just for any other small business owners in Newfoundland this fall, when that program comes out again, I, I would encourage everybody to look into putting in an application for that because um, they're they're really. Uh, looking for uh, sustainable businesses that that provide solutions to local issues, and and you know it's a twenty thousand dollar grant, so that can really help boost any any local businesses that are looking for expanding expanding their operations like that.
0: Where exactly is your farm?
1: I'm in Bloomfield on the Bonavista Peninsula. Our farm's called Outport Acres.
0: Listen, good stuff. We're really pleased that you made time for the program this morning, Adam. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Appreciate your time. Take good care. Bye-bye. You, you too. Bye-bye.
0: Here you go. Good story to kick her off. Uh, let's take a very quick break. When we come back, Craig wants to talk about Earth Day and Northwest Passage. Okay, don't go away.
3: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
0: Well, welcome back to the program. Uh, before we get to uh, the Northwest Passage, let's go to line number 8 and say good morning to Nick Miller. Hi, Nick. You're on the air. Hi Teddy. how are you? Excellent, sir. How about yourself? Oh, pretty good. All uh, right. Thanks so for me come on this morning. Happy to do it. You know, we'll try to help promote some events, uh, whether it be Labrador or on the island. But uh Iron Fest is coming up in August from the eleventh to the fourteenth. What's gonna go?
4: So we uh it's the first ever Iron Festival. Um And we have, on Saturday, August 13th, we have a concert as well as uh, a food, beer vendors and such. Uh, But we actually, our headliner band is going to be the Sam Roberts Band. Um, And opening for them will be the Navigators. And we have a local band, Shallow Water, as well as uh, Dave McHugh. That's going to be our lineup for the day. Uh, We're very excited to be able to offer the first ever Iron Festival to the people of uh, Labrador West and uh, we're excited to see how it'll uh,
0: turn out. Fantastic, well, I really love Sam Roberts, when I first heard uh, what was the name of the record, We Were Born in the Flame I think it is, uh, I was not knocked my socks off, seen him several times, Montreal George Street and otherwise, so folks if you're not familiar with Sam Roberts, dig into some of his tunage and his uh, records and you'll be absolutely want to go to Iron Fest but you got more than that one big day on the Saturday lots of different things, whether it be for youth and seniors, talent shows and other stuff, pepper the folks with what they can anticipate with Iron Fest?
4: Yeah, so leading up to we're going to be doing some different youth events. Uh, we'll likely end up doing maybe a drive-in movie. Um, on Friday night we're going to do a youth talent show and amateur night. Um, it'll be on the main stage and it'll basically give any local uh, talent an opportunity to come out and perform and uh, we're hoping to get a good crowd out for that as well. That'll be a free event; people can just come out and have a listen to some uh, some local talent in the park. And then on Sunday, we're going to do a, a bit of a seniors' afternoon in the park, and uh, kind of have a, an event for them. And we're hoping it all ages with our festival. And we don't have the full uh, full schedule nailed down yet, but we're hoping to have it out by the end of May. Um, and, yeah, we're very excited to, uh, to host this, and we can't wait to see how it turns out.
0: What drove you to try to establish the first ever Iron Fest? And we know full well anyone who's ever been involved in an event, whether it be one day or three day event, it takes significant horsepower and effort. So who came up with the idea? How many people you got working with you?
4: Um, when, when I first took the role, about a year and a half, uh, I, moved, I just moved to Labrador uh, City, actually. And um, one of the things I noticed was that we didn't have a summer festival and it was something that kind of wasn't on the radar and i thought that it was something that the community really deserved and needed um especially coming off COVID, um two years of lockdown um we're really looking forward to being able to get the community back out and give this awesome event to them to be able to enjoy Uh, so we we pitched the idea back in october to the town council and they were in full support and fully behind us and it's kinda of snowballed since then. Uh so I have a, a great team behind me. Uh, my programs and events coordinator, Evelyn Ryan, uh has been doing uh, the bulk of the work, uh but she's been amazing in planning and getting the, the event off the ground. And then we have a couple other uh couple other people in the background that have been helping us out with the production side of things. Um, which we kind of were a bit new to. So it was good to have them and bring them in to help us out.
0: Listen, good luck with it, man. Uh, Thanks for making time for the program. Just before it gets going, give us another shout so we give it one more pump.
4: Awesome. Thanks, buddy. So, yeah, so tickets go on sale today at 10 o'clock. Uh, Labrador time. Uh, our early bird VIP tickets are, uh, early bird tickets are $40, and our VIP tickets are $100. Uh, the event will take place from August 12th to the 14th, um, with the main day being August 13th, featuring Sam Roberts-Band and navigator Water, and Dave McHugh. Uh, we'd love to see uh, all parts of Newfoundland and Labrador come out, as well as our own community get out and, and support this great event. I uh, appreciate the time this morning to come on and chat about us. Uh, I'm sure I'll be called back uh, as we get closer to the event.
0: Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Nick. Good luck. Thanks, buddy. Have a great day. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, now let's go up to the Northwest Patches on line number six. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Hi, Craig. Line number six, Craig. Craig on six. Craig on six going once. Craig on six going twice. Craig on six on hold. Let's go to line number three. Eugene, you're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty. Morning. Thank you to you and David for taking my call. Uh, Patty, we had our demonstration here on Fogo Island yesterday, demonstrating our concern that we're going to be losing our doctor in June, and as of now, we don't know of any replacement. And uh, I want to thank, thank, uh, big thank you to all the. Demonstrators that came out. We didn't have a big crowd, Patty, but there was a lot happening. You now it's a Easter break. People are gone off their own hockey tournaments and all that stuff. And the crab plant is open and the fishery is open. And but uh, what was what was there was very determined. And we appreciate it. We had our MP was there and he had his say. We had our, our deputy uh, mayor. Justin Hearn was there, and that is, say, because he was in on the meetings last Thursday with councils and, and uh, Central Health to to see what the plan was for the future, which was all good. Uh, Patty, uh, I, I, I've I been listening to the news the morning show on that, and I, I, I understand from the meeting yesterday in Gander with the Premier and the Minister that there's extra money cut out for primary care, vir- virtual emer- emergency room, Columbus team clinics. Uh, that's all good. It's, it's really good. Any, anytime there's extra money put in healthcare, it's a good thing. But the sad part about it, there was no mention of replacement doctors for rural Newfoundland. We got five that we know is going, and I understand there's up to nine that's going, uh, five confirmed. And we got no understanding of any replacement. They say there's going to be temporary doctors here for at least a month or two this summer temporary just won't cut it we got to have permanent doctors right now if there's an accident here on fogo island at the crab plant or we're uh, or whatever we don't have a doctor now the doctor's gone off the island for family reasons but that's understandable but this is just an example what would happen virtual just won't cut it patty
0: you're not alone you know, we've heard from uh, municipal leaders in a variety of communities, whether it be Mayor Crew down in Hermitage, or the folks in uh, Buckins and Saint Albans, has lost theirs. The list's pretty long. Harbour Brighton is scheduled to lose theirs right away, so. I don't know where there hasn't been mention of replacement doctors because as far as I can tell from where I sit, they talk about it a lot, but I think that we all of a sudden believe that just throwing money at it solves the problem. When If that was true, then we'd have no problems in this province because the the expense on healthcare is whopper. What is it, 36%, some $3.6 billion per year, and it's not solving the problem. So the creativity with recruiting a doctor, especially to a remote, rural, isolated part of the world, and including the province is a little bit more difficult than I think people give it credit for to be honest.
5: You're downright, Teddy. You got summed sum up pretty good. Uh, uh, the premier is saying we can't be doing the same things over and over like we have in the past. I, I don't know what the explanation of that was. Do you have any understanding what he meant by that?
0: Well, I think what most people would think is that if you hear of a cut, you think that it jeopardizes one service or another. But in healthcare. If we just continue to believe that we continue the path we've been on, the status quo, the reliance on brick and mortar, and the continually pumping money at it, it just hasn't worked. That's my problem, is that if we're looking for positive health care outcomes, then we're kind of reacting after the fact. We only deal with you when you're sick. We don't do much to talk about how and why people are engaged so often with the healthcare care system. We don't get down to, you know, why we're leading the league in the cardiovascular issues, diabetes and otherwise. So we're very much a reactive system. So to understand who's getting sick and why, the social determinants of health, and to try to streamline or make the system more efficient and to in- increase access for folks, we don't really do that. We just think that, well, if we spend more money, then things will get better. But historically, if we're being honest with ourselves, it hasn't worked. It simply has not worked.
5: No, Patty, it won't work. I mean, we we're gone from three doctors at one time to one doctor, and now we're going to lose that doctor. We got a lot of activity on for for Guam. We got twenty-two hundred people. We got the Hindonet it is block solid blooming. We got the crab plants and we got the shrimp plants, and we got yeah, traffic on, on the go. And uh, you know, if there's an accident, and you know, we, we you know, I know of a, a someone that went to the hospital just recently. The blood ran out of them from an accident, and and Doctor Terry took care of them. I mean, if he wasn't there, that person would be dead today. You know, we, we got to have a doctor station on Fogo Island, but it was, you know, not only Fogo Island. Of course, you've got Arbor Britain, you've got Bay vert, and you've got places, and I understand, down in, in New West Valley, the doctor's leaving on there. So we got to have doctors in these areas. We just can't operate virtually. You just can't call together to the virtual uh, uh, the phone call and, and get c- coverage for that blood that's run out of that person. We got to have doctors, and we're going to have doctors because this protest won't stop. We will continue.
0: Appreciate the time this Eugene. Thank you.
5: Patty, always good to talk to you, man. You're
0: doing an excellent job. Thanks, Eugene. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a nice weekend. Uh, Just quickly before we get to the break, the great Red Fisher, of course, covered the Montreal Canadiens for decades as a journalist. He wrote in a column, this is years ago, that the three greatest Montreal Canadiens of all time was number one, Jean Bellevaux, number two, Maurice Rocket Richard, and number three, Guy Lafleur. This morning, Guy Lafleur has passed at the age of 70. So this week, you lose Mike Bossy and Guy Lafleur. And, you know, as a Montreal fan, and far and away, my two favorite players were Larry Robinson and Guy Lafleur. And he does still remain one of the absolute legends of the game and one of the very best and most exciting Montreal Canadiens. Dead at the age of 70. Boy, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven and say good morning to the PC member of the House of Assembly elected in and serving the folks at Harbor Maine. She's the shadow minister of women and gender equality. That's Helen, uh, pardon me, Helen Conway Ottenheimer. Good morning, Helen. You're on the air.
6: Good morning, Patty, and thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. I, I'm calling um, this morning, Patty, because I heard uh, in your preamble yesterday you referenced uh, a topic which you had described as, as perhaps a difficult topic to discuss, and, and I guess dark in a way, but I really am glad that you raised this this topic yesterday, and that's about violence uh, in our province, and uh, it really needs to be discussed. We need to have these conversations. I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk about the specific plan that you referenced yesterday as well. Um, But first, one of the things that you had mentioned yesterday, and before I get into the the benefits and the importance of having an actual plan, which we don't right now, uh, but one of the things that you mentioned, and I I think I'm going to just discuss that a little bit, because you talked about, um, you know, why don't women leave abusive relationships? And you know, I really think that's important to, to have a chat about because, you know, there are misunderstandings out there about about domestic uh, abuse and, and why women don't leave, um, you know, abusive relationships.
0: Hopefully, it came across the way I intended to because I think I hear far too often if you find yourself in a dangerous place, then just leave. But that is just so oversimplified and it ignores all of the real contributing factors as to why people don't leave a dangerous situation, whether it be a place to go. Finances, children, pets, whatever. We just can't say if it's dangerous leave because that's simply unfair to the victims.
6: And you know that's why I just want to say because bringing that up, I mean it is I think um, somewhat embedded even in our perhaps in our institutions and and it may even still be embedded in our criminal justice system in terms of you know perceptions when when women are for example um, you know bring forward um, claims of um, abuse uh, in the court system and and so you know I think that this is really important because we do know that there are barriers. There's no question about it that that exist and that stand in the way of women leaving abusive relationships and, and whether it's psychological or emotional financial uh of course the danger and fear that's out there and uh, you know it's also important th- to recognize that asking for help is really not easy and there may not be family supports out there for women to do that and so I think we really need to talk about that as well because that that's an important part of the equation When we talk about violence in in our communities, um, you know, about the perceptions that are out there, about the uh, fact that, you know, we need to challenge these, you know, uh, negative attitudes that are are surrounding um, uh, women and and why they don't leave these abusive relationships. But I also wanted to mention you you talked about the plan, and I had uh, brought that up in in the House of Assembly when in, in question period. And, you know, I don't know if there's um, an understanding as to why it's important to have a plan, and there was a plan. It was the Action Plan for Prevention of Violence in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it ended. It was it was um, a four-year plan. It ended in 2019. The problem is we don't know what what has happened in terms of whether there's been any evaluation of the plan. Is there going to be a new plan? It doesn't appear from what government and the minister has stated that. There's there is going to be even a, a further plan. Why is a plan important? And we need to have an action plan because it's a strategy. I mean, we look at the national level, and you've referred to this in the past over the last year or so. But the national action plan that that um, you know is really a vi- you know roadmap to us uh, for uh, to educate us on violence against women and gender based based violence. So we need to have you know an action plan that sets out the Outlines of how governments are going to use evidence, how they're going to do research. It's about, you know, strengthening the policies, the, the violence prevention policies, what supports are out there. Um, you know, we need to have increased public awareness. There We need to try to change the attitudes that are out there. There has to be a zero tolerance for, for violence. And, you know, I don't know if, if I really don't believe that we're, we're um, giving this the attention that it needs. We're, we're clearly not. I don't know why government isn't. I don't know if it's there's no political will there. I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I, I from the responses we get and as critic for, for just uh, for um, women and gender equality, uh, you know, I, I almost see it almost seems that their attitude is just, um, you know, that they're not really doing what they need to do. And well, uh, it's, it's serious.
0: Uh, the problem's probably gotten worse during the pandemic, or that's the reports that we get anyway from the various community groups across the country. Here. And, of course, there should be a distinct, clear strategy. You know, when we talk about government policy, there needs to be a reason for it, and it's obvious on this front. There's got to be a way to measure the successes and to know when it's time to change tune, change path, accelerate or whatever, you know, education programs or what have you. It becomes extremely complicated on this front because to measure successes, you have to be able to have some data that you can apply to the concern. And on this front, domestic violence or gender-based violence, but the problem— becomes very clear is you have to come at it also from the justice system point of view because if people are not reporting to police then we don't have a clear idea of what's actually happening out there so a strategy for awareness whether it be in schools and education or what have you we also have to make it a place where there is a different and increased level of comfort and confidence for people to come forward. You know, whether it be the initial online reporting that's not available at this moment in time with the RNC, and the specific training for members of law enforcement to deal with and help and to treat and to accommodate victims of gender-based violence. Because until we get that done and we know that people feel more and more comfortable to come forward, we'll never be able to have a firm grasp on actually what's going on.
6: No, it's true. And I have to say, I've been out meeting with different violence prevention organizations, you know, and the biggest issue that I'm hearing from them is that we have to prevent violence from happening. So yes, having a a crisis line, that's a good step, but that's only helping people after the fact there needs to be focus. Education is the key at an early age. We have to have compulsory um, curriculum, core curriculum in the schools. We don't have enough. We need to educate our young, um, you know, boys in particular about the meaning of consent and dating violence and, and healthy relationships and other issues involving uh, gender-based violence and par- parent programming. I mean, that also is it would, would be helpful. But I, when I look at this and the fact that there is no plan, okay, there's no plan. You know, government has to lead. They have, you know, the opportunity to, to do this. It has to be led by government. Now, yes, they're an amazing Organizations out there, women's and other equality-seeking organizations, they've been instrumental in the, over the years for decades um, with respect to anti-violence work and the experience that they bring forward. But if it's not being led by government, they have done very little. There's no political will, and you know this. This is what I'm concerned about. We have to aff- we have to invest in this issue because the long-term costs of violence in our society, we know what that is. That is, and and where there's no commitment um, to creating a new violence prevention action plan, that is is very very concerning to to me as critic for uh, women and gender equality, and for our, the opposition party, and for all Newfoundlanders, I'm sure.
0: I appreciate the time this morning, Helen. Thank you very much.
6: Thank you for raising this important topic, and we'll continue the discussions. Thank
0: look you. to it. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Bye bye. Helen Conway Artenheimer, the member for Harbour Maine, and the shadow minister of women. And generate quality. Let's take a break. And hopefully Craig is there next time when we click on line number six to talk about Earth Day in the Northwest Passage. Don't go away.
3: Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome
0: back to the show. Let's try Craig on six again. Craig, you're on the air.
7: Yeah, top of the morning too, Patty. You too. Yes, uh, that was a technical issue on my fault there. No problem. Um, yes, I did. First of all, uh, in regards to the last caller, uh, and, and I'm not calling about that, but I mean, there is as many abused men out there as women, and men just don't come forward.
0: That's absolutely true, and there is no emergency shelter for men. The reality is for incidents that are reported to, uh, to police is... Dramatically more women abused than men, and I think everyone will understand that. But yes, and no one disputes it, and I said that clearly on the show many, many times that there are men that are the victims of abuse as well, of course.
7: Yes, I mean, but I, mean, I called about the uh, uh, Earth Day and the uh, fact that the ice caps are, are melting, and there's soon it's going to be a 12 month year passage for Northwest Passage just on climate alone. So, Canada has to do their best to uh, basically declare sovereignty over that region because it's always been in dispute for years. But I mean, now it seems ice packed, nobody really fought over it.
0: Well, the conversation's been ongoing for a long time about sovereignty in the Canadian Arctic archipelago. Uh, Prime Minister Harper was really quite bullish on it, to be honest with you. That's one of those things that he did focus in on. But it is becoming a more coveted passage now, absolutely because of ice conditions. And notably, it's the Russians who are our number one foe for access and sovereignty in the Canadian Arctic. So, yeah, I think there's got to be an obvious focus on it, of course.
7: No. Yes, and and given the fact, I'm sorry to interrupt, but given the fact of what they're doing over in Ukraine, but I mean, they've got a lot more power, or. Navy-wise and Canada, has a, Canada doesn't even have a presence there. I believe we've got one boat floating around. There is
0: a boat up there, yeah. The uh, so Canadian government has long considered, and I think it's been recognized internationally, that the Northwest Passage is absolutely part of Canadian international waters, but that doesn't, uh, that doesn't stop someone like Vladimir Putin and their want, or the Russians want, to have that to be their... Their access point here and you know people pretend Russia is the other side of the world I mean it's it, not as it pertains to North America it's 53 miles across the Bering Strait between Russia and Alaska
7: so I yes, mean exactly I mean uh, I know I'm, I understand that I understand geography and uh, but I mean there, there's a lot of uh, profitability as well to uh, in, in minerals and whatnot to make sure that okay this is ours this is Canadians land. This is Canadians' waters, d- d- if you're getting what I'm saying.
0: I think everybody does. I mean, there's long been shipping in the Northwest Passage. I think as recently as 2009 or 10 or something, it became a fairly regular route, uh, given ice conditions. But I don't think anyone disputes the importance of it remaining recognized as Canadian international waters. Yep, I'm with you.
7: And like what I'm saying, I mean, with all the boats to go through, okay, if you want to enter, there's a toll. So there's an income for a Canadian government there.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I suppose we have to be careful with a variety of things like that, given the shipping routes that Canadian companies use with access to, like, the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal, for instance, which I know is it, it doesn't come free. But uh, it's an interesting conversation regarding the sovereignty of the, of the Northwest Passage. I agree with that 100%. Anything else, Craig, before we take another call?
7: No, uh, that, that's what I had in my mind this morning. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it seems like the governments after Harbour have totally ignored that this is coming and it's coming fast so we better uh, plant our flag on all those islands up there.
0: Appreciate the time Craig
7: Alright thanks I
8: Take good care Alright bye bye. Right.
0: Uh, let's go to line one. Bruno you're
8: on the air uh, Good morning Patty. Uh, happy Earth Day You too um, in uh, In light of that I would like to uh, uh, start a discussion uh, about uh, Beta Nord and uh, Stephen Gilbo, who, as you know, <laughs> was fam- most famous before this for hanging off the CN Tower with uh, anti climate change banners. Now that he is the environment minister. He has a political problem with the demands on both the East Coast and the West Coast for more uh, capacity, more oil and gas. So what he does is shift away from himself the responsibility for decision-making by creating this new Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Because prior to this, it was the federal environment minister that had the decision-making power on whether these projects were to go ahead or not. He still does. He's
0: just looking for political cover, that's all. He says, you know, well, it's not my decision. It's the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. And they've stiffened the parameters inside that agency back in 2019. So he's deflecting away from his own past as an environmental activist, now the minister of the environment. But it's absolutely the, the final decision remains on his desk.
8: Well, of course, but uh, if you talk to him, I'll bet <laughs> I bet he bet he'd dodge that one. But uh, uh, the environmental movement in in Canada and globally uh, has a couple of uh, super villains. Uh, one of them is Dr. Patrick Moore, one of the original handful of uh, people that started Greenpeace, uh, that uh, has since jumped ship and has become the favorite of uh, industries like the nuclear industry, oil and gas industry, forest industries, uh, for saying, uh, let's go ahead. Uh, in other words, he's completely uh, abandoned his uh, green past and is now as uh, um, opposite of that as one can become. So he's a villain in the environmental movement and Stephen Gilbo has just joined his ranks. So Moore is not no longer alone as the supervillain in uh, what's going on with the planet. Uh, He's joined uh, Patrick Moore. Now, let's look at this uh, on Earth Day, Um, this Equinor, Beta Nord uh, project in that context. Um, Gretson Fitzgerald, who grew up in Newfoundland, And who's the uh, executive director of the Sierra Club Foundation, I think is her current position. She grew up in Newfoundland. She's got a marine uh, degree in marine, a PhD in marine biology. She's the sister of your chief medical officer. And what she has to say about Equinord is that there's been a long history here of both the community's concerns being ignored. Fishery concerns being ignored, and of course, the impact on whales and other species being downplayed or ignored. Uh, now, Keith Stewart, a former colleague of mine at uh, Greenpeace Canada, says the decision represents a triumph in the kind of politics that will only deepen the climate crisis and global addiction to planet wrecking fossil fuels. Now, Carolyn that National Policy Manager at Climate Action Network, uh, says that coming just two days after a UN climate report that was clear that there is no more room for oil and gas production if the world is to avoid the worst of the climate crisis. Well, we're about to uh, charge straight ahead into that brave new world. Where we're not going to avoid the worst of the climate crisis, get ready for fire, hellfire, and brimstone by the time uh, Bay de Nord gets developed in eight to ten years from now, long after it's going to be of any use to the people of Europe who will have changed. Equinor
0: says first oil 2028 if things go according to their plan. Uh, so Perhaps it's not. It's not the minister
8: in some of reports says ten years. So you, you know you can lowball it, but. The point is it's going to be well after this cl- this crisis in Europe is resolved. Uh, so let's uh, leave that where it's at. Uh, UN Secretary Antonio Guterres says that new fossil-fueled instru- infrastructure investments are moral and economic madness. So uh, we'll forget about the moral and economic madness in Newfoundland. We live in a different world where immorality, and economic madness are the order of the day. And now let's look at uh, what uh, Angela Carter has to say. She says that I think what really angers and frustrates the people here is that we're told that the coffers are empty, that as a province we're nearing bankruptcy, and yet we can still subsidize the oil sector. I think people have had enough, she said. She also referenced these AstroTurf campaigns. Now AstroTurf are fake grass, green grass uh, groups. They're fake uh, public concern groups. They're designed to falsely project grassroots support and even school curriculums influenced by the oil industry that she says is climate change denial by another name. So she calls what's going on in the campaigns there, climate change denial by another name, call it uh, when you lowball it and say it's going to be eight years rather than 10, uh, what you're really doing is trying to pretend that this isn't moral and economic madness. Uh, uh, but what difference does it
0: make 8, 10, 6, 8, 10 what does that have to do with anything if the project is going to be approved by the federal government or released from the environmental assessment and final sanction coming from Equinor what difference does it make if it's 8 or 10 years from now
8: it's not going to make any difference it's going to be hell on earth either way isn't it so the point is why are we doing it when everything points in the direction that this is moral economic madness Why are we charging straight ahead and trying to lowball it? it? It's only going to be eight years instead of ten. I don't know what difference it makes. It's only, you know, it's the cleanest oil, and uh, we're not going to burn it. We're only going to develop it because it's the cleanest on the planet. Nobody said that. That kind of stuff. That kind of stuff is just nonsense, right?
0: Well, nobody's ever said that, but anyway... (laughs) <laughs> Nobody says they're just going to develop it and no one's going to burn it. Or no, they're not developing it for fun no, no, or the good I'm of their saying. hearts.
8: That's what I'm saying. If you're trying to pretend that you're the cleanest oil, what you're saying is that we're going to develop it uh, and we're not going to burn it. We're going to pretend that we're not going to burn it.
0: Extraction issues only represent about 15 to 18% of life cycle. Uh, people understand that. Nobody pumps oil to simply you know, pump it into the ground somewhere else it's obviously going to be consumed and used in a variety of different uh, applications uh, again, I mean, yeah, so no one says we these talk things talk about
8: it being the cleanest on the planet why do we do that?
0: Bruno, you, now, I mean I know you don't want to talk about any of those things in context and I'm just not really sure what to say I to that anymore. I
8: want to talk about them exactly in context and to focus on them laser focus on them and look at what we're doing moral economic madness at a time where every day you have seniors calling you telling you that they're starving in the cold because they can't afford to live and yet WE SUBSIDIZE THE OIL AND GAS INDUSTRY we shouldn't. TO CREATE A PLANET THAT'S GOING TO BE A LIVING HELL FOR OUR CHILDREN. WE SHOULDN'T uh, SUBSIDIZE THESE
0: COMPANIES. WE SHOULDN'T SUBSIDIZE the, uh, THOSE COMPANIES. BUT uh, CARBON INTENSITY IS PART OF THE CONVERSATION. I DON'T KNOW WHY IT WOULDN'T BE. IF WE'RE TALKING ABOUT THE INCOMPLETE LIFE CYCLE OF OIL, IT HAS TO INCLUDE HOW YOU EXTRACT that's THE OIL. And IF WE DON'T like WANT TO CONSIDER THAT, THEN that's that's WE'RE MISSING. Okay, All right. So let's look. I'm having too fun. I'm having too good a a blue sky, sunny day here in St. John's. I'll give you the final thirty seconds before we say goodbye.
8: You got uh, talk about new uh, diesel-fired combustion turbines there to replace Holyrood. When the alternative uh, that we should be looking at on this, the greenest of uh, Earth days, is uh, forgetting about fossil fuels. One way or another, and set up windmills off your near shore. Happy Earth Day. Build some batteries for backup. You can shut down Holyrood. You can uh, provide backup power instead of spending $65 million a year on keeping Holyrood clunking along. Every year, you could be building a handful of four megawatt turbines that, in the run of 10 years you would not only be able to shut down holy road completely you'd have a green energy system that would benefit everyone and that would let you cut costs to those seniors when you can produce energy not with fossil fuels but with the wind blowing, that you have the best regime on the planet.
0: Appreciate the time, Let's morning, Bruno. Let's
8: look at the alternatives. Let's be green. Bruno. Let's not look at fossil fuel uh, because it makes our Bruno. friends some money. How can you keep looking at fossil fuel development and pretending the Beta Nord is anything except the end of life as we know it on the planet? I, on don't, Earth I, day, I don't know how much
0: more we can talk about just transition from a variety of different angles, which I bring up, I don't know, maybe
8: uh, and uh, four out
0: of five Nord days a week. Bruno, I'm not arguing with you anymore today because...
8: How does it... Well, you haven't I, made But any I have nothing to do to with the, the proofs. ...today, which is, I guess, a step up. Addy. Is what?
0: Say that again, that last part?
8: You haven't made any... Out- outrageous lies about me, telling me that I demean and diminish uh, your... Uh, th- Bruno, Bruno, <laughs> what?
0: you've made your point. I'm not sure what else to tell you. You've had a fine chunk of time. Well, I've
8: just congratulated uh, you for not making outrageous lies Bruno, about me uh, on this earth. Uh, a left Yeah,
0: an off-handed... Uh, carefully guised compliment which is just an insult i mean do you think that you're going to be able to pull the wool over my eyes i mean haven't you not learned that that's not on and so i gave you your time just i'm wishing you a happy weekend you've had your day? 12 minutes i'm late for my break so we can do this cordially or we can do it the hard way i'm just saying goodbye and i wish you a nice weekend points made well, I, thank I, you for I'm your happy time you
8: haven't made outrageous lies about any outrageous lies about, you know, me, outrageous lies about me today well like uh, you did the last what you,
0: you do to me all the time Time. okay no, so no, I don't, you want to talk
8: outrageous lies about you, you you do
0: you do you do it I, all the time
8: i am you but with the facts no you don't
0: ones. no you don't yeah, bruno you do. you've had you your time
8: danny williams yes, here, here we go right. again then, here
0: we go yeah, again you can you get up to it i can just replay That's calls you of the play, past Danny? no I'm not afraid of Danny Williams or anyone else why would sure I be well, why am I afraid of Danny sure Williams sure you are you're terrified sure. of him sure there you go Bruno so yeah, we we almost made it through without the same old song and dance even though all yeah, I need to do is replay today's call. tell
8: to those seniors that keep calling you and telling you there's
0: I do the best I can because for you're
8: the developing beta sh- Nord and Muskrat Falls I do That's the best I can tell them
0: I do the best I can to help the folks who call including senior citizens now I'm going to say goodbye for the final time either you just uh, you know offer the return goodbye have a nice weekend or i'll just Happy press the button
8: why don't you get gretchen fitzgerald on there to talk about bruno have a nice weekend have a
0: good have a good day good day take care break time Welcome back to the show let's go to line number three say good morning to the national media relations director at the nature conservancy of canada that's andrew holland good morning andrew you're on the air
2: hi patty how are you today
0: couldn't be better how about you
2: Sorry that Bruno was giving you a lot of grief there. I heard a good chunk of that last segment. So, uh, I'll try to be more positive and uplifting on Earth Day. <laughs>
0: it's, all in the, it's all in the message, but it also includes the messenger and the approach that they choose to take, and it's always the same one with him, so be it, as uh, part of the gig, I suppose, but we won't be hearing much more from him, I don't think. So on Earth Day, obviously a big deal for organizations like yourselves at the Nature Conservancy of Canada. What are you doing? What's the Earth Day mean to you and your partners?
2: Well, for sure. Earth Day, every day is Earth Day for the Nature Conservancy of Canada uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador and elsewhere. Uh, In Newfoundland and Labrador, the province has the third smallest percentage of protected land of any province in Canada. And uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada is the only private land trust in the province so we're trying to work with willing private landowners who want to donate or or sell their properties for conservation and since 1996 we've we've managed to do 11 different nature reserves across the province that have multiple parcels of land that we've negotiated and that's protected over 5600 hectares across the province. It also
0: comes with some possible and potential backlash because every now and then when we hear that a different area is going to be protected, whether it be by done, uh, work done by WERAC or your organization, people think they lose all this access. And all of a sudden, this is sacrosanct and no one's even allowed to breathe in the direction. Say Salmonere River, for instance.
2: Yeah, Salmonere River, that's an active place where we're working. We're actually uh, looking to connect more puzzle pieces there, Patty, to expand the nature reserve there. Uh, along with the one in the Grand Codroy Estuary over in the west coast uh, in Doyles. Uh, Great project areas where we've worked with local private landowners who've decided to sell or donate their lands for conservation. And when private citizens do that, because these are private lands, they're not public lands, they're not government-owned, But when private landowners decide to donate or sell those lands, we restore them back to their natural state. But we also allow some access, like what we would call light access for walking, photography, hiking, that type of activity. Uh, We allow people to to, to still use these lands uh, that that were privately owned before.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there's... There's always going to be some pushback, but, of course, we have to have some rational pushback to have meaningful conversations about what it actually means. And I, that was a great example was when we did the, their report and recommendations put to the provincial government. It was unbelievable, the backlash that it brought to bear. So anything specifically happening with your group today on Earth Day?
2: Absolutely. We have what's called the Keep the Rocked, sorry, Keep the Rock Rugged campaign. It's a $3 million fundraising campaign to advance conservation in the province. We've raised over $1 million already. And so we want to raise additional funds that will be matched by the federal government through what's called the Natural Heritage Conservation Program. It's a matching fund from Environment and Climate Change Canada. So funds that we receive in the province from people will help us expand the nature reserve, such as the Salmonier Nature Reserve and Grand Cadroy Estuary. Uh, it'll help us double the number of youth internships in the province each year, which is great because it's, it helps... Add employment uh you know it'll help us do more stewardship events in the province we want to do five per year in different parts of the province whether it's planting trees and other things Uh, it'll help us improve the technology we use to monitor the 11 nature reserves across the province and also it'll help us try to work with the provincial government to seek and new protected areas on crown lands this is really important patty uh, for the benefit of your listeners, 88% of the province's lands are considered crown land. So there's a lot of opportunities there to increase conservation. And so the Nature Conservancy of Canada has us keep the rock rugged campaign that uh, will, is aimed at doing more private land conservation in the province
0: important work to be done and the work is never done as you rightfully know and understand Andrew appreciate making time for Earth Day uh, on Earth Day here on this show this morning good to have you on
2: thank you can I just mention something just very briefly because I talked to Dave about it a moment ago sure go ahead Uh, 1230 today Newfoundland Labrador time check out our Facebook page if you can for those who are interested in nature and the environment the largest private land conservation project in Canada's history is being announced the Nature Conservancy of Canada is being joined by the federal minister of the environment along with Indigenous organizations to announce a huge protected area that's double the size of Toronto and three times the size of Montreal to protect boreal forest in Canada. I want to just mention that. It's under embargo because the news conference is coming up, but it's 1230 Newfoundland and Labrador time, and people can view that on the Nature Conservancy of Canada's Facebook page.
0: I appreciate that, Andrew. I'll take a look.
2: Take her easy. Have a great weekend.
0: You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. Sandra Holland is the National Media Relationship Officer with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Let's take a break. Don't go away.
3: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back.
0: Let's see here. Line number two, Roz, you're on the
9: air. Hi, Patty. Um, you got so, You got interesting topics that touch my heart today, especially about um, women. Um, and I thank God for the Irish cur- Kirby House, because th- that is after saving a lot of women uh, from um, being battered
0: hmm uh, The Irish Kirby House, that's right.
9: Yeah. Now, what I called mainly about today, I don't know if I heard this right or not, uh, but a judge gave a company a break uh, under fine for a death or something. I, I only heard this on, on the news now. I, I don't know if I got all the information straight or not, that the judge felt that the company was small, so the, the fine was smaller uh, because of the, an injury and the job. okay. And I don't know if I heard that right or not, but um, what I'm worried about is, will that open the floodgates for other people that, uh, you know, we'd like to take to court, like big companies? Um, And because these big companies got lawyers, uh, would this uh, bring down their fines also?
0: Uh, I don't know if that would be the case. And, And in the recent past, there's been some pretty big companies pay some pretty hefty fines for some of the workplace incidents, including a couple of deaths that were just adjudicated in the courts not so long ago. So we always have to be mindful of the fact that, You know, the justice system, whether it be a lot easier to navigate for the well-to-do, rich Canadians and certainly big corporations, they have the ability to wait you out. they got the money and the resources and the time to drag out court proceedings until they wear out the the little guy. So that's always something I think we should be aware of. Sure.
9: Yes, Patty, that's true too. But what I'm, I'm afraid of, because the lawyers know how to wiggle around things, that they might be able to use this as a... You know, a, a thing to make their fines smaller too?
0: I don't think that's uh, anything that's new. Uh, they will always try to do what they can to minimize the damages that the companies that they represent have to pay. I, so that, that's not a new phenomenon.
9: Is that, is that new? No. Oh, yeah. Like I said, Patty, like I said, I'm not an educated person, but you have topics all the time that touch my heart, and um, I, this is the part, when I, I heard that on the news yesterday, I just had to get on and voice my opinion on it. Sure. Because, um, you know, the party is, um, you know, I never, ever heard workers can't take big companies to, to court. Uh, did it ever happen?
0: But this—I don't think this was a court case brought forward by workers' compensation. Uh, so I think you're talking about a paving company, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. These cases happen all the time. Some of them are settled out of court, but this was a local company that actually pled guilty, and uh, in an effort to try to deal with what would be the punishment coming their way. So I think I know the case you're talking about. Uh, yes. Anything else you want to say about it this morning?
9: No, no, Patty. Like I said, because uh, these topics hit my soul all the time, and, and I'm glad I could speak to you, on it.
0: I'm glad you called, Ross. Have a nice weekend.
9: And uh, you too. Okay. Thank you. Bye.
0: All right. Bye bye. Uh, let's try line number four. Eugene, you're on the air
10: morning, uh, Patty. Good morning. Right, my we phone Michael did, but if if uh, if I do, I'm on the cell phone and the charger's not working. If I do, can you call, call, the? This, I'm gonna to talk to you after. Call this uh, animals rights or S2CA and send it to uh, 10247 St. Louis Bay, Hubbard, Nova Scotia. Because I got a problem here with a guy got three dogs he got no address, no no car, no nothing, and I don't, I'm very concerned about the whereabouts, of those dogs, especially the two little ones belonging to my daughter. Uh, he, I don't know whether to how he's treating them. He's been gone now over two weeks. He takes them to work with him in his in his friend's truck, he, and he says he he could be living in the park. He says. I'm very concerned about the dogs. and Can we get some animal rights or somebody here to, to help us out to get them dogs and see what see what condition they're in? For somewhere in Nova Scotia? Well, in Hubbard, sort of Halifax.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't know where to start with uh, an issue in that province, unfortunately.
10: Well, my daughter lives here. She's from Newfoundland, Port St. where I'm from. And I've been here now trying to get those dogs back. And we we, we tracked down his girlfriend, and she don't know where to. or two. And he got no, driver's license, no vehicle. And he takes him to work with his friends, a little small pickle. So where is those dogs, and how are they?
0: I would have no idea. Have you tried any of the animal protection groups in Nova Scotia?
10: Well, I don't know nobody, none, none of them. And uh, I'm just wondering if, if you could contact somebody or, you know, give me some advice, or somebody out there could give me some advice, even the, the law enforcement or, or somebody who likes animals or, uh, you know, I don't know where to turn no more. We just can't get the. He broke in the house. He beat in the door and stole the two dogs. That's the kind of lie thing, right? He stole the two animals, two dogs, and, and we can't see him get them back there. c p can't see to do anything here. And it, with the kind of lie relationship was over, which was over before Christmas, October, and she bought the dog after, and he broke in the door, slammed in the in the basement door and come in and stole the dog while she was working. Okay, and I, I don't know
0: anything about that or how that relationship uh, worked or lasted or ended. But I'll, I'll give you a number if you want to call someone in Nova Scotia.
10: Just this, this is out. Do not that horse that my outside of the Kamala relationship. You shouldn't be the top will come of
0: I can give you a number you for someone them? in Nova yeah. Scotia if you like, Eugene. Yes, please. Okay, so it's a toll-free number. It's one eight eight eight. One eight eight eight.
10: Seven zero three. One second now. 7-0-3. 77-22. 77-22. Yep. Now, it's housed in here, but they're always, always just, well, it's time allowed. We can't get too involved. He should, she should. I think she's the only female that was ever pushed around in, in a Carmeliah relationship. Everybody else is always the always the main. He came in uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and took the horse while well, she was working at social work. And put it up for sale. And she took that day a day off of work, sick day, and came and took the horse. Her horse to the to a ranch so he so would be safe. Okay. Why he did he come home and the horses was gone? So he beat the door in and took her two little dogs. She bought in pet. after the relationship. Okay. Then, I, I
0: don't know anything about the relationship, and I don't really want to talk about it because I have no idea what's going on. And hopefully she's okay, and I hope the animals well, are
10: okay. Is she is so far, but what the, we're worried. Yeah, I come over here from from Port Sanders on the boat Easter Easter Sunday to take care of her and make sure he don't be in this house again. This house is up for sale, It's already sold, and, and he don't not even, even supposed to be around here.
0: Obviously, I hope that she and the animals are okay, and that toll-free number is the place to report any cruelty against animals in the province of Nova Scotia. So hopefully, you have some success with that, and I certainly hope that she will be safe and okay. Uh, good luck with it. and I appreciate your time this morning.
10: Oh, yes, I'm going to work on that. Thank you very much. You're
0: welcome, Eugene. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? When we come back, we're speaking with you. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Margot, you're on the air.
11: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
0: Okay, how about you?
11: Good, thanks. Um, We're at Goobies right now, and we passed by uh, coming from Clarenville, and I wanted to report that it looked like there was a fire uh, across the bay from AD Town. So I just wanted to put the word out so if somebody could check on it.
0: Did you call Fired Emergency Services?
11: Yeah, I didn't know what the number was. <laughs> I thought getting it on to you would, uh, would do the job, right?
0: So. Uh, okay, uh, but of course, there's nothing I can do about it, but I'll give yeah. you a number where you can actually report what you see to the folks who need to hear about it. Okay. Uh, so just try this one, 729-1608.
11: One six zero eight. I yep. will do that, and thank, and happy Earth Day to you.
0: The same to you, Margot.
11: Okay, well, I'll
0: thanks for the call. All right, bye bye. Uh, let's keep Line number three, George, you're on the air.
12: Patty, how are you this morning? Top shelf. How about you? Not bad, boy. Listen, I don't know how you does it, my son. You got the patience of Job. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, th- I think I'd have told some of them people that caused in the Fuddle Duddle line before this.
0: Yeah, that's it, bye. But, I mean, it wouldn't be much of a show if I was quick to tell people to where to go and how to get there. But, anyway, appreciate that and appreciate the time. What's on your mind?
12: Uh, the seals again. Boy, the sealing season, there's lots of flippers to be had. I think everybody should go out and get a meal. But more important, I think Patty is... Uh, the seal flippers uh anybody that likes them or even people that don't like them pick up a few and drop them out at the local legion or some community group and so they can put on a big feed for someone make a few bucks everybody's hurting after the covid so i mean i'm sure all these people could use some kind of a revenue source and and another thing too patty is uh the the seniors homes i think Maybe someone should be dropping off a few flippers at the senior zone because I'm sure uh, 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 feed a uh, flipper at the senior zone put a smile on some faces. And then people really need it too at this, this point after all the COVID and everything else. So I'm uh, just putting the word out there that it is the season. So. And the more we eat, the, the, the less there is of motor. and you know there's, too, there's way too many of them out
0: there. Yeah, we don't even take the, the quota annually any longer. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how popular seal meat is amongst uh, different segments of society, but I know that a lot of people treat it as a comfort food and look forward to their annual feed or two of flipper pie. But yeah, I mean, I, Taylor's truck is down on the waterfront. I know they've had to increase their costs a little bit this year, just like everything else under the sun. But yeah, I suppose it won't be long before I have my annual one feed. I'm only good for one to be honest.
13: Well,
12: yeah, I I'm like that too, Patty. But I usually buzz a few, tuck away, and have a feed in the summertime, sometime when you can't get and it's a special treat to me to have a meal of lobster and, and the seniors. and especially like the, the, the likes of the Legion. Anybody puts on a, 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 a you know, a big flipper dinner, well I mean, uh, they can't they can't cook enough, but uh, Anybody that can afford it or anybody that even don't like them can buy a couple and drop them off at the Legion. And uh, that crowd always puts on a better feed than, than anybody. And, and the Legion must be suffering, too, after all the COVID, too, right? But but to see a smile on a senior's face when you put the plate of see in front of them, I would say it's warm your heart.
0: Pardon me, I pressed the wrong button. I don't doubt it. Like, we promoted this flipper dinner at Branch 1 of the Legion just a couple of days ago, and Bill Tizzard gave us a call. There's lots of community groups will do a flipper dinner or, you know, option of roast beef, whatever the case may be. If we're ever going to talk more and more about seals, and the conversation for many people is over, because if we can't find more expansive or increased markets for the product, then we're all of a sudden just talking about the call for call sake, you know, the political yeah, issue as yeah. opposed to the market and the viability of the pelt and the meat and the oils. So I think they're all kind of different conversations. But I appreciate you making time for the show, George. So have you had a feed yet?
12: Oh, yes. And I'm looking forward to another one. <laughs> and, and, and Patty, uh, uh, you do look younger on the radio.
0: <laughs> there's a reason i'm on radio
12: <laughs> have a good weekend
0: patty you too george all the best all right all right, all right. bye-bye all right i see for here to go to line number five say good morning to one of the members of the board of nature nl that's michael Plummer on five hi michael you're on the air
3: good morning patty and happy earth day
0: same to you sir
3: so i'm calling in to announce uh just to remind folks we have a couple of cleanups happening today in celebration of earth day Uh, One is there in Saint John's, and uh, going to be cleaning up along the Waterford River. Uh, This this project is in collaboration with the Northeast Avalon uh, ACAP. That's the uh, uh, Avalon Atlantic Coastal Action Program. Uh, The Saint John's cleanup is at 2 p.m. next to the Bowring Park uh, Dog Park on Waterford Road, uh, Waterford Bridge Road. Uh, there's parking available at the Bowring Park parking lot on the corner of Waterford Bridge Road. Um, the Nature NL will be supplying gloves and bags. Uh, and then we have a second cleanup also happening, sponsored by Nature NL, out here in Bonavista. And it will be a roadside cleanup along the Cape Shore Road leading to the Cape Bonavista Lighthouse. Uh, The event starts at 1 p.m., and we are meeting at the Cape Shore Trailhead, uh, asking folks to wear waterproof shoes or boots if you have them, but make sure they're comfortable enough to do some walking because we're going to be, hopefully, cleaning the road all the way to the lighthouse today. Um, There will be gloves available, but you can also bring your own if you like. And we'll also have water available, but bring your own cup or a water bottle. Water bottle, because this will be a trash-free event. Um, we will also have some homemade chocolate chip cookies for folks. So. Earth Day is a great opportunity to get outside and help the Earth while enjoying nature.
0: Luring them in with a chocolate chip cookie is probably an excellent idea. Um, (laughs) You know, I talk about litter because I think it comes uh, with many different concerns, whether it be with tourists, whether it be with the fact that if you pollute, you're just absolutely polluting the place you live. It shows a distinct lack of pride of place. Then, of course, it would impact your neighbors. If I clean up the old grout in my backyard, well, that protects my neighbor, too, because the wind's just eventually going to blow it in their yard there are so many different things that come with approaches and maybe some novel ideas like I think they do good things for instance in Cornerbrook they've got good ideas now unfortunately we've got a lot of people in with a chocolate chip cookie or a $100 gift certificate or a $500 gift certificate but from where you stand as the board of uh, Nature NL do we exaggerate just how messy the place is because I've traveled a lot in my life and I consider this to be one of the messiest places that I've ever been what do you see
3: well, I think we have some unique challenges here. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly recent transplant uh, to Newfoundland and Labrador. And um, something I learned very quickly, not, longer, not long after my wife and I moved here, is that on many days, you don't want to open your car door, two, car, two, two doors at the same time, because, boy, does that flush out anything that you have loose in your car very quickly. <laughs> um, so I, I, think, I think sometimes the trash comes from things like that or someone has uh, trash that, you know, they haven't uh, uh, secured well enough. Uh, the wind really moves the trash around here, to be sure. Um, you know, there, there definitely are some folks who continue to throw things out the, the, their car windows for whatever reason I, I, don't, I don't know exactly. Uh, but the, the importance of it is this, is that very often that trash – lands in low spots, and often that is along the ditches of roadsides. And many of those ditches empty water into local streams, which those streams empty into the ocean. So a lot a lot of that trash can get carried out into the ocean, which, as we know, is a very big problem uh, globally.
0: It's remarkable that all of a sudden things simply like community cleanups and uh, uh Tidy towns and all these types of things, clean and beautiful St. John's, they all of a sudden get slumped into how people push back against just big climate change issues and greenhouse gas emission reports and electric vehicles and infrastructure. You know, we're talking about something very fundamental. You can think whatever you like about climate change, even though it's absolutely real and it absolutely is a crisis. Even if you disregard that, I don't know how we've jumped in all of a sudden, picking up litter as part of that eco-alarmist conversation. You know, <laughs> goodness gracious, we've we've had a we've done a really poor job trying to you know apply a little bit of common sense and a bit of patience to some of these issues. Cleaning up your neighborhood doesn't mean all of a sudden that you are going to hang yourself off the CN Tower like Stephen Ghibo. Like we just got to relax a little bit.
3: <laughs> well, it, there's no doubt that uh, there, there's there's actually a lot of complexity in regards to. Uh, why particular areas, regions uh, have uh, more littering uh, than others. Um, but, but it certainly is a problem uh, here in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. And I, I just encourage people to, uh, you know, e- even if you're one of those folks who, who also notice the trash and, and, and find it, um, you know, that, it, that it's an issue, you know, take a bag with you when you go out for a walk. Uh, and pick up some trash while you're out there. Um, you know, it, it's it's one thing to contribute to the issue, but but to to give back, to be out there, have a bag with you. I I always, when I go out for my runs, uh, you know, people probably think I'm a bit ridiculous. I'll, I'll come running back with my pockets completely filled with trash, and I'll literally have like an arm an arm loads worth uh, just to get it to the house uh, and get it into into the trash can or for recycling. Uh, And and likewise, my dog will wear a little backpack with pockets, and I fill those pockets up with trash as I go.
0: Nothing wrong with it, you're on the right track as far as I can tell, Michael. There's a neighborhood cleanup coming up where I live uh, very shortly. We're actually actively working towards, well, I can't take any of the credit, one of the ladies in the neighborhood is working with the city and others to try to establish a community garden. So good things happen when people put their energy into them. Uh, Good to have you on the show, Michael. Happy Earth Day to you. Okay, take care now. You too, bye-bye. bye-bye. Michael Plummer, who's a member of the board of Nature NL. Let's take a break for the newscast. Now, I did mention Mayor Crewe a little while ago, I think, when we were talking with Eugene. He's the mayor of uh, Hermit- uh, Hermitage, Sandyville. We're going to talk about doctor recruitment and what's happening in his community after this took away.
5: Your O C M, 2022
0: ECMA nominee for Media Outlet of the Year. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the mayor of Hermitage, Sandyville. That's Steve Crewe. Mayor Crewe, you're on the air.
14: Morning, Patty. Thanks for having me again this morning. Happy to have you on. Well, I just wanted to call this morning because this is the day uh, the Coast Bay residents have been driven uh, Our doctor, our last doctor, is uh, finally—well, not finally gone, but he's gone as of today—and we're put on full diversion now till Monday morning. Uh, so the ambulances all have to go to Grand Falls from, from today at 8 a.m. till Monday morning at 8 a.m. So it's a sad a day indeed for. For me and for all the residents, and my 20 years, I I've never, ever seen it before, so it was a kind of a scary situation, and we really don't know where we're going to go from here. I know there's talks of locums net coming from May and June, but uh, there's still going to be diversions from time to time, so like I say, it's a different situation altogether, Petty.
0: A couple of things, Mayor. Do we know why your doctor's leaving?
14: Uh, no, I, I really don't know. I don't know if it's just because he was left there by himself and he decided that it was t- time to go. I re- really haven't been told, not officially, but uh, I know being a doctor in an area like this by himself is probably uh, a lot of work, and I'm not sure if that's the reason he left or not. It came unexpected, so I'm really not sure. I haven't been told why. Uh, the exit interview, I'm not sure if it's been done or not. I guess we'll find out uh, if it's been done or not, and after this we might know why exactly he left.
0: 'Cause that's the trick, you know. We have to understand why doctors are leaving one place or another so we can address their concerns.
14: Exactly. I don't know, you know, if these doctors come here and, you know, the the availability of you know for their families and that is not here and uh, uh, I mean we seem to have everything that you know I mean, most towns do and, you know, COVID has shut down a lot of things, but I mean they're starting to reopen the net, so I don't know like I say if they don't care to be in a position where they're the only doctor, and uh, you know it puts a lot of stress on them, and that's the reason they're leaving. But uh, like you say, is uh, it's pretty dire. Uh, you know when, when that happens, like I say, we've never ever had it happen before. Saint Albans have been dealing with you know for a long time, and they you know and at least they could go to Brenton. but now the, the option for all the Coastal to residents of course when we're on 4 day version is to go to Grand Falls and. Uh, Nobody knows their line. they got to wait once they get there. It's two and a half hours, uh, you know, for anybody. I mean, people, residents of McCallum and uh, Gauntless, they got to come by ferry before they get to the ambulance, and then there's a trip to Grand Falls. So and this time of year, of course, all those young moose are moving, nighttime and daytime and that. So, you know, pose a lot of risk, you know, for, for the ambulance drivers and, and the uh, patients.
0: I mean, your community is one of many communities that are dealing with the exact same issue. You know, today or next week, is that they're losing their last doctor. It's you know, the the province has created a new deputy minister position for recruitment of healthcare professionals. I think I think that's moving in the right direction. But I've also said this, and I'll get your thoughts on it. The communities are actually play a role as well, because if we all stand back and wait for government to save our lives or to do what we need to do, we'll be waiting a lot for a long time, many times, I think that applies. So what role do you think you and your community play in creating an atmosphere where it'll be attractive for a doctor and their family to come? Because, again, recruiting a doctor to Hermitage Sandyville is different than recruiting one to Gander or St. John's or Lab City. So what role do you play?
14: Well, well, Petty, you know, these exit interviews, I guess, you know, will help to identify the needs of these doctors that come here. Uh, and the doctors don't really come to understand but of course they they're britain i mean there's three and four houses down there for the doctors to stay in i mean they you know and they're all looked after the, you know and these houses are kit but you know by central alette and i mean there's coffee shops, restaurants i mean you know there's everything that they would need to live in in these towns i mean there's gyms hockey arenas, and stuff so i mean I really don't know other than having you know more doctors in the area that I guess they can uh, you know. Uh, get with, you know, night time or, or whatever and, and, you know, be friends with. But, uh, I mean, I really don't know what else we can offer other than what we're doing right now. Hopefully these exit interviews might, you know, identify something that we may be missing and, and if so, we'll try to, you know, accommodate it if we can.
0: Yeah, I mean, that wasn't an, wasn't an effort on my behalf to put you on the spot. I just think that we're going to have to, you know, play a role with government to help create these packages for different regions because it's we're not all the same and all these communities aren't the same and the amenities aren't the same and the distance to the closest airport isn't the same and things for young families to do isn't the same everywhere so that's the only reason I ask because I think we're going to see more and more communities take that active approach and I'm sure you're doing everything you can to on behalf of your residents to get a doctor in your community but you need to see even the successes of getting a doctor to come back for a locum on Belle Island they you know refer to it as the grand seduction So I just think that's going to be part of it as we move down the road. But I'm sure the residents get quite stressed because, you know, you live in a fairly industrial area where the possibility for a serious accident is present every day. So I hope, like your community or Bayvert or Buckins or wherever or St. Albans, the need to get a doctor hopefully is attended to and it's going to take uh, all hands pulling the rope in the same direction.
10: Yeah, Patty,
14: like yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on a community access advisory committee. I mean, we meet with Central Ralph since it's happened every two weeks regularly. Uh, you know, the CEO was on there and you know, all the people from Central Ralph are trying to recruit these doctors. They keep us updated. I mean, I I I mean, you know, communication with uh, our MHA always love us every day, two and three times a day. And what you, you get on these social media posts about MHAs, all the MHAs in these areas, whether they're liberal, PC, or, or NDP, they're families living in these areas. Yeah. And to go on and attack them, if there was something that they could do, they'd have it done. I mean, they're families living in these areas. They want it looked after. So, I mean, there's no good to get on social media and attack the MHAs because there's nothing being done. I mean, you know, they're trying to do the best they can and for their, for their own towns and for their own areas. I mean, uh, you know, we all need to stick together and we all need to. Work together right now and, and try to get out of this situation as soon as possible. I mean, uh, I've even had people approach me say, well, perhaps we should contact the military and see if they got doctors available. Because if this situation gets worse, Patty, we're going to need serious help somewhere. And I mean, if that's where it's got to come from, if there's doctors with the military, does not, you know send overseas or whatever, and they're willing to do it. I mean, we, we, drastic times cover drastic measures, and we got to do whatever we, we can do to survive down yeah, no here.
0: Yeah, no argument here. I think you make a key point. Look, nobody wants to let politicians off the hook, but we also have to pick our fights based on reality. And you're right. It's not like the members don't want to see a doctor here, because whether it be because their families live in the area, and there's a massive political victory available if they're able to say, a new doctor's on his or her way. So it's just easy pickings to go on social media and based anybody. We're regardless of who they are business person individual and particularly politicians people can criticize all they like but if we're being honest the members of the house of assembly would only hope to be able to go back to their community back to their district and know that the doctor is there so again it's not that they don't care about anybody it's just that it's a really difficult competitive market internationally for these doctors and hopefully we can get our fair shake because god knows we need it uh, anything else before we take a break mere crew
14: I just want to, you know, uh, send a bouquet, of course, to all the uh, Central Health workers that are working in these hospitals right now, um, whether it be St. Albums or uh, Harbour Britain. I mean, they're doing the best they can, and, uh, you know, they're only allowed to do what they're allowed to do, and, you know, we're trying to get through it. Hopefully Central Health or, or the government will allow, you know, uh, nurses and nurse practitioners to do more under these uh, DAR situations, and, uh, like I say, we'll just keep fighting uh, the good fight, and hopefully we'll get a... Get a doctor eventually, and their doctors—I mean—and uh, we'll have better days ahead.
0: I look forward to the next conversation, and fingers crossed. Appreciate your time, Steve.
14: Thank you, Patty. Take care.
0: All righty, bye bye. That's uh, the mayor of Hermitage, Sandyville, Steve Crew. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go line number three and say good morning to the chair of the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council, also known as. Is he still the chair, Dave? He's not the chair. Was the chair when they put forward a report recommending protected areas in the tune of, I think, thirty-two. Graham Wood joins us on line number three. Good morning, Graham. You're on the air.
15: Good morning, Patty. Happy Earth Day. Same to you. It's a big day for us, uh, obviously, uh, around the world to uh, think about protecting our ecosystems and. uh, you know, protecting them for our children or grandchildren.
0: It's remarkable uh, just how much and how vicious some of the pushback has been in the recent past. What's the status of the most recent report uh, that's been sent off to the government to identify 32 areas to be protected? Where are
15: we? Well, um, as far as I know, uh, our board uh, had our last meeting on December the 13th. And so we're waiting for the board to be reconstituted, but uh, to date we haven't heard uh, haven't heard any information on the re uh, on the reappointments uh, from the independent appointments commission. So uh, you know the the report and the plan has gone into government uh, and sits I suppose on the desk of Minister Davis to take to cabinet and try to move forward in terms of having consultations about all these thirty two different. Uh, different proposed uh, protected areas
0: because you know right off the bat the recommendations in the report were treated as if it was all of a sudden legislative protections and look out and it's all said and done when in fact government moves at a snail's pace and we haven't even seen it brought to the cabinet table as far as I know as well so here we are give us an idea of some of the some of the parameters surrounding how you identify these 32 areas and why it's important just cherry-pick a couple that we can discuss
15: well, there, were nine, uh, there are nine separate ecoregions in the province, and of those, a number of them have different uh, subcategories. And so uh, over the 25 years, we were trying to protect uh, a percentage of those particular ecoregions so that we would have all the representations within the plan. So uh, of the 32 uh, proposed areas, they take in... I'm just trying to think of the total, but there are nine separate ecoregions, but there are sub regions probably up to thirties different um ecoregions that exist in the province so when we looked at uh, at various areas to protect, like the northern peninsula for example uh and uh, and other areas like uh, Fushi Bay and the south coast and uh, the uh, Swan Islands in Notre Dame Bay, these are all specific regions that uh, have Special protection needs, uh, as I said, the last, the la- I suppose the last of true wilderness that exists in Newfoundland. Uh, exists, this uh, exists on the eastern side of the Great Northern Peninsula. So when we look at those three regions of its uh, soufflets and uh, you know the other ones there that uh, that we thought they were very important to be protected, but uh, it's really interesting that. The Government of Canada and the Government of Newfoundland uh, only on April sixth signed an agreement to protect biodiversity in Newfoundland and so uh, now that the governments both governments have uh, have done that uh, there's there's a fair amount of money there's like four point one billion dollars for nature protection that are set up across Canada. And so governments now have access to being able to get some money to look at those areas and protect those areas, uh, as well as other things like the Eagle river uh, watershed protection area that they're looking at completing in consultation with indigenous communities by 2025. And, uh, they're looking at a, a possible uh, national park on the South coast and one of the South coast fjords there as well as Marine protected areas. So, uh, you know, there's a huge potential here now for the government of Newfoundland to get on board and to get this stuff moving because uh, it seems like the commitment of everybody there, uh, I mean, the Premier even said very clearly, our government is committed to taking bold steps to tackle climate change and protect the invaluable natural resources throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. So, uh, you know, that's that's really important that the Premier is getting behind this and hopefully uh, Mr. Minister Davis will be able to move this, Document or move this plan through cabinet, and then look at the long-term, uh, I suppose, consultation process that's going to take place over years to uh, kind of get these uh, get these protected areas uh, finally. Protected.
0: Yeah, I'll try to get an update from the minister's office. That's where we are in the process because, you know, like everything else, it takes an awful long time to make moves on matters of immediate importance. Uh, Anything else this morning, Graham, before we uh, take a break? You know, maybe you want to touch base uh, quite quickly on what you anticipate for this upcoming tourism season.
15: Well, you know, uh, I just heard the ice reports, and you mentioned it this morning, that uh, there's not going to be a lot of icebergs coming to Newfoundland, and that really... Speaks volumes in terms of uh, in terms of our warming oceans. Uh, so I'm very concerned about that. And as you know, the tourism industry in St. Anthony and uh, Twillingate and all in Trinity and all these areas rely heavily on uh, on icebergs and iceberg traffic. So you know it doesn't augur well. But we we think that it's going to be a better summer this summer than last summer. Um, most of the tourism areas, like the high traffic tourism areas, are booked. Uh, And uh, hopefully we can have a um, a good year, but I don't see it coming back until 2024, till people are able to fly. And then we have all this concern with Omicron and and subvariants, and so you know there's still there's still problems obviously around the world in terms of. dealing with the COVID issue.
0: Yeah, and people want to travel. Like, I really do, and I'm going to this summer. I feel like I've been cooped up a long time, and I think there's a lot of pent-up demand out there. And there's, you know, also some encouraging numbers. Maybe some of the airlines that just offered you a travel voucher, most of which are going to expire this summer, so people are going to either have to travel or take a loss. But, you know, even the encouraging numbers with the bookings on on Marine Atlantic gives me reason to think that we've got a good season coming, and hopefully that's not just cockeyed optimism I'm trying to base it on what I hear from numbers from airport authorities and Marine Atlantic. But good luck to you and your operations uh, this summer, and I appreciate your thoughts on Earth Day today.
15: Thank
13: you, Patty. Have a great day.
0: You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. A great mood was once <laughs> with Wierak. Uh Will I get the bouquet, and then we'll come back for Mike? All right, let's go to line number five. Randy, you're on the air.
11: Patty, how are you this morning, Patty? Great, Randy. How you doing? Hey, I was just wondering, I was talking about flying away, so where are we going to be like the geese now off to in the sun?
0: Uh, is that a question? Where am I going?
11: Yeah, no, you know, where are we going? Mexico now, or down to uh, Dominican Republic, somewhere, or Hawaii? Or- I
0: got a couple of friends that are in the Dominican right now, seem to be having a whale of a time, or so says yeah, their have. social media.
11: Well, a whale of a time, wicked, <laughs> whale of a time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm yeah, I'm yeah, I'm yeah, my my parents now, uh, Wavel and Mary Whisker Moulton, living in Lawrence's Cove on the beautiful Bjorn Peninsula, are celebrating their 62nd wedding anniversary today
0: wow 62 that's marvelous
11: yeah yep, and, and I, was, I was the reason for it <laughs> anyway anyway uh, uh best wishes come from randy michelle edward uh, Brittany, emily matthew mark laura family and friends
0: are they all uh, your siblings or some of those are the wives and the husbands
11: no uh, no i tell you now uh, uh michelle and edward are my, uh, my sister and my brother and Brittany and Emily are my two daughters, and Matthew, Merrick and Laura are uh, uh, Michelle and Paul's uh, Matthew, Merrick and Laura, yeah? Well, well, Michelle had Matthew and Mark in her previous marriage, and Laura now, Laura Dolber, now for, for uh, Mr. Paul Doberman, very soon.
0: Terrific. Well, 62 years is a uh, long spell to be married, and I'm sure that it takes a lot of effort to make it through 62 years of marriage. And I'm sure they'll be pleased to get a, a happy anniversary wish here on the show this morning.
11: Yes, and, and my mother has the patience of Joel. <laughs> oh, <damn, I> <laughs> no.
0: Well, that's a requirement oh, for gone. parents. <laughs>
11: huh?
0: uh, that's a requirement for parenting, I think, as well, is how oh, good dollop of patience.
11: Oh, patience, is a, is, patience is a virtue. You gotta have lots of patience. <laughs>
0: that you do. I'm familiar with yeah, this, exactly even though
11: with, with uh, the young people today, because the work ethic there today is nothing compared to what it was years ago. Hey,
0: right? I don't. I
11: mean, I don't know. I, I, you well, know, I can Certainly not, not the same, pattern. It's certainly not the same, right? because we always work their nose to the grindstone. Hey, right? but but I tell you about a lot of the problems. There's no cell phones. Like you spend a lot of time on your cell phone, great right? on your laptop and stuff. And you know, yeah. well anyway, yes. no, that's my <laughs> that's my little spiel I Irish farms.
0: I appreciate it, and happy anniversary to your parents. Hey, Thanks, Randy. Uh,
11: yes, and uh, Patty, how uh, how'd your hamstring last game? Terrible, terrible. <laughs> well, they're going to get a number one pick, hopefully.
0: Well, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, the kid now, who I'm trying to think of, the 16 year old that's lighting it up. Oh, what's his name? Just jumped out of my head. Hopefully they
11: oh, Cole, Cole Caulfield.
0: No, the young fella playing Junior out west, he is absolutely crushing and he's way out ahead of even like Connor McDavid numbers. Oh, I just I read a story young,
11: about young, anyway, young Newfoundland Labradorian? Young
0: Labradorian? No, he's from the West Coast somewhere. Uh anyway, Randy, appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend.
11: Okay, take care. Yeah.
0: All the best. Okay, bye bye. How about is that kid's name? Anyway, I'll get it during the news. He is something else. He is putting up numbers that are you know, even when compared to like McDavid numbers, and there's been other big junior stars that have absolutely lit it up over the past and now. My phone's buzzing, that might be one of my hockey buddies giving me or saving me and giving me a name. Ha <laughs> ha, Connor Bedard. that a boy, Donny Power. Let's take a break for the news, don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin The cabin party with Brian O'Connell Saturday night starting at 7pm on VOCM And welcome back Uh, Let's go line number 4 Mike you're on the air
13: Hey, Patty, Good morning. Good morning. Um, and so, sort of the irony, I was listening to your uh, comments earlier in the program about um, Alex Newhook and Dawson Mercer, and, and it's fantastic what's going on out in Bay Roberts. I spent many an evening out there uh, in that little arena, and some of the best French fries in the world, and watching Dawson, Dawson when he was going through. And now to announce the uh, yeah, Brian to announce the uh, passing of Gila Fleur, the Flower. Uh, for many of us of a certain age, I guess, a vintage, um, we uh, enjoyed many a game with uh, Mr. LaFleur. He was fantastic hockey
0: he was thrilling to watch. I just saw the Toronto Maple Leaf send out their condolences to the Montreal Canadian family and, of course, Lafleur's family because he was one of those guys. You know, I think fans of a variety of different teams really appreciated what Lafleur brought to the table. He was just so bloody exciting night after night. I, I loved him. Yeah. Yeah, between him and Robinson, though, those were my guys. I, I loved those yeah, boys. That,
13: that was my era as well. My mom, God rest her soul, uh, she was a Lafleur and die hard, you know. So here we were, there were like... uh Seven of us uh, huddle around this old black and white TV, if I remember correctly. We might be for Toronto, but we knew our place <laughs> when they were playing Montreal. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, she wrote it. Patty, the reason for my call is I want to talk about briefly on these regional health centers. I think they're called RHCs. I think it's what the minister has been referring to them as, and the establishment of the collaborative clinics, health clinics Yep, that are on the go. That That's a done deal. I mean, it's uh, rural, different land. Uh, I heard some really plaintive calls here. People are in an awful, awful way down there not being able to retain their doctors and their doctors are leaving. And uh, and that's a, that's a done deal. Those centres are going to happen. They're, you can complain all you want. I believe, you know, from a doctor's perspective, these things are a bit of a godsend. Many of these were almost forced into rural Newfoundland, the doctors were, in that they weren't allowed in the larger urban centres like St. John's, and there was some kind of a barrier to them coming in here the, the local doctors sort of kept them out and sort of c- a controlled competition in my opinion look, like how does anyway, that work though wrote,
0: what do you mean by that
13: well well what i mean by that is many of the doctors that were out in rural newfoundland would have preferred to have larger urban areas for things like one of your callers mentioned the quality of life you know the amenities that they have and, and not being overworked many times only one or two out there or just one out there and and not being able to take holidays and a continuous worry and a continuous struggle of building and everything else. with the regional health centres, these clinics, they're, they're, their life is going to change for them. First of all, they're going to be in larger urban areas to start off. Secondly, a lot of the administrative work that they had to depend on getting done before is now going to be done by the clinic. Because the clinic will have the relationship with the province and the doctor will have the relationship with the clinic. So any issues that they're dealing with, and you get one stop shopping. You know, you go in and and you can they send you down for all of the stuff that you, you know, wait to get blood work done or wait to get x-rays done. These clinics eventually will have them. And uh and, and I think some of them are being set up with them, Patty. So from a, a doctor's perspective, they're a bit of a godsend. You know? They they and let's face it, whether we want to admit it or not, most of these doctors. Do not want to live in isolation. They want a lot of the immunity. So that's that's the cruel fact of life. My concern on it, and I don't know if clinics are good or bad. I've had many years of experience with privatized healthcare in the United States. So I've seen these clinics, and that, you know where they they now have they uh, they have it structured so you know a lot of patients are being dumped on the street that's what i'll call it but that's a bit of an exaggeration but you're losing your doctor and they're not going to transfer you over they're not going to bring you over because you don't live in the you don't live in the geographic area covered by a clinic
0: but and, what's so, the relationship to yeah. any american approach to medicine though I, I think i'm missing that one
13: yeah okay the uh, in the in what's going to happen now is that these clinics these And they will be privatized. If they're not already, they're being set up to be privatized. These will be for-profit clinics. They're going to operate. They're going to retain doctors. They're going to buy equipment. They're going to put it out. And they're going to bill government. And they're going to bill the insurance companies. So really what they're becoming is they're, they're becoming, and they, this is the first step, to private clinics. And what's going to happen here is that I have concerns in the U.S. and it's anecdotal. A lot of people say, "Oh, in the U.S., they check your credit card before they check—you know, before they check you." That's right. That's not here yet. But what these for private for-profit clinics is what they're going to be. They're going to negotiate uh, prices with the province. I don't know if it's going to be cheaper than what we have now, but they're going to negotiate the prices. They're going to—they're going to service the insurance patients first are they going to get them first or are they going to take them because they like out here now you're going to pay for your car you get a better deal but if you go to the insurance company the insurance company gets billed more is that's what's going to happen here now why, why do you think concern.
0: that what leads you to believe that that's what's inevitable
13: well, I, I've seen it, Patty. I, I, one of my comments before said, "I've lived this experience. I've dealt with many people who've had to use private clinics in the United States, and uh, and and these stories of financial hardship or lack of access or bankruptcy, these things, these are not stories. These are true facts. And while it's being glossed over now, this is the detail." that we're not seeing all we're being seen techy little phases like collaborative clinics really what they are is they're clinics being set up in urban areas to catch most of the people and people are being inventoried into them that's what's going on the relationship and this was explained by the director of regional health care on another uh, program uh, as late as last night they're going to be dealing with the clinic. They're not going to be dealing with all the doctors. The doctors are going to deal with the administration part of the clinic. The clinic wants to make money. It's going to bill government. it's going to bill lots, it's going to bill the insurance companies, or it's going to charge cash for its services. But
0: they're—they're they're, they're not charging cash in these collaborative care clinics.
13: Oh, there will be. If you go in there and there are services, for example, that are not covered by Medicare and you don't have insurance, if you want those services, you're going to buy them. I'll refer to my eye, my cataract eye surgery that I had last year. I had, I I went to a medical, I I went to a specialist and, and I was advised, you know what, you got a little tiny bit of a cataract in one eye. So we're going to refer you to this clinic so they sent me to the clinic. I went into the clinic, and they said, "Oh yeah, this is covered by Medicare. Your your cataract. By the way, we see a little tiny star in one in another eye. So you really should do this one too. But it's covered by it's covered by uh, by Medicare. And while you're here, let us tell you about this fantastic deal we got. It's four thousand dollars an eye. All right. Uh, I'm sorry, Medicare doesn't cover this. Right." And and this is how these things work. You know, they get sales opportunities. So is that going to happen? Yes, it's going to happen. I don't know. It is. Well, I think it is. These are the questions I'd like to see answered. I think it's a precursor. Now, taxpayers, is it gonna be cheaper for us the long as as taxpayers? We're paying thirty six percent for health care. That's wicked. I don't know what to co- I don't know what to break down. I haven't seen those exact numbers. I don't know if it's going to be cheaper or not? That's my concern. Is it going to provide better service to everybody equally? That's my concern. You know, uh, I, it, you know, if you're a doctor, if you're coming out of medical school today and you get to go into all of the stuff that's looked after for you, your insurance, uh, you know, you get a paycheck every week. You know, because you're a doctor, you're commanding a really good rate of pay. You can send them down to get the blood work done the same day in theory, you know, or get your x-rays done the same day or something else. For a doctor, and if you're not in tomorrow, somebody else is in that clinic and take your patients when they come in. That's fantastic service. That's great service. All of life. But I don't know if in the long word that's going to solve our financial ills other than it's going to cast a lot of people who have financial services down, particularly in rural, without them. Because these clinics are attracting these doctors. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Mr. Hagee may deny it but I think that's what's happening.
0: And they'd be fools not to do it. But I mean, the doctors are already working in their own private clinics as independent contractors. And uh, I'm not really sure where you're coming from because at this moment, these clinics operate strictly on an MC billing uh, process. Period. So I, I don't know how all of a sudden this is the slippery slope to American style. If you're not insured, then too bad about you kind of stuff because this, I think, is attractive for doctors because it might indeed share or spread some of the burden and the workload because walking into a clinic, you might not need to see a general practitioner. You might just need to see yep. an RN or a social worker or a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner or whatever the case may be. You know, and look, even some of the doctors call a collaborative care clinic has the gold standard. Because if I have a private clinic operated just by a GP, independent contractor, billing MCP, I can have a full patient roster that I can manage in and around the neighborhood of 3,000 people. That's what I'm told. These clinics can maybe triple that. So I know some people get orphaned because they don't follow their family doctor into the clinic, but it's hard to lose sight of the fact that this clinic can handle three times what a single serve GP clinic held in the past so I think there's a big upside to this the only problem I can see with it at this moment in time based on comments coming from the NLMA and the College of Physicians and Surgeons is that unless we have the staff levels then we're just shuffling people around if all the new doctors were actually new to the system then the collaborative care clinic sounds like the only way to go
13: to me I mean even the doctors said quite clearly we're goal not standard we're not, so, we're not disagreeing on this, Patty. I'm, I'm in full agreement with you. From a, a doctor's perspective, this is the way to go. I have never met, or never, never seen, never met in those years that I was involved in. I've never seen a doctor go against private health care. never seen it. It's right to their benefit. I've got no doubt about it. I'm not arguing it. it. They don't have to live out there and do all the billing themselves. They don't have to deal with MCP. They probably don't have to deal with audits. They don't have all this to deal with. That's fantastic. It will re- a lot of doctors who otherwise may leave our province because they couldn't move to St. John's. You and I fully agree on that. I get no problems. My problem is that these clinics in in the utopia that they're set up to be, they can take three times as much patients and all of that kind of stuff. No matter how, it it may be, it might be, but there's no new doctors in here that I'm seeing. The doctor supply is controlled by the medical school, which is controlled by the doctors, whether we like it or not. I I I'm I'm agreeing with you. These collaborative these health clinics are fantastic for doctors. They're fantastic. And all of the you know, boy, this is great stuff, this is this is the solution to nothing, in my opinion, right now, for the supply of doctors. Now, whether it's cheaper or not to the taxpayers of Newfoundland and Labrador or whether it increases access to those people who need access is what I don't think is going to happen based on my experiences, how I've seen how these clinics eventually run into where I think these are going to go. Now, I might be wrong. But that's based on experience. Anyway, we can argue just for the cows come
0: home. Oh, and we needn't argue it. You know, looking down the road at what might happen it just is helpful in the uh, effort to form questions that are pointed, whether it be to the college or the medical association or Minister Haggie or anybody else. So, I appreciate your contribution and your time this morning, Mike.
13: Great talking to you, Patty. Have a great day. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Final break of the morning. When we come back, you'll probably have a chance to have the last word. If you're so inclined, pick up the phone and give us a call. Don't go away. Welcome back. So just before we wrap it up, off air, when I run into Brian Mador in the newsroom, we talk about sports all the time, specifically hockey. And I know Brian talks with Ben Murphy on the VOC Morning Show about hockey sometimes been a couple of big losses for national hockey league fans whether it be mike bossy and today the news that at the age of 70 montreal canadian great gila has passed let's go to the news brian are you there oh yes yes so uh, as i mentioned we talk an awful lot about mm. hockey but it's hard to talk about some of our favorite memories of years gone by without including some gila
16: Boy, I tell you, when he came on the scene, uh, we were a little bit disappointed, Patty, because he was uh, the coveted first draft pick, how Sam Pollock maneuvered uh, Los Angeles and the Oakland Seals into getting him, giving away, basically, Ralph Backstrom to help one of the other teams, because they had, uh, Montreal had the first pick. that uh, Los Angeles-Oakland had the first pick, one of them. I forget which one. And so Sam Pollock gave one of them uh, Ralph Backstrom so that that team would finish ahead of the other team that gave Montreal first pick and that was Guy Lafleur. It was just ingenious. Uh, And then uh, Guy Lafleur started off quite slow people don't realize. First year 1971-72 32 goals. Second year 28 and third year I think it was 29 and then came 1974-75 and he won the scoring race. He was just a different player altogether but he was a little slow developing those first few years. And that wasn't long after
0: where Montreal automatically had the first crack at the Montreal or the French-born players from Quebec, which was always such a weird opportunity, has a distinct advantage for him. My very quick Lafleur story, I've seen him play many times live and it was a thrill every single time, but I was at a Pure Later Cup once and I believe it was in Charlottetown PEI where he was guest speaker and the players were not allowed to go to the hospitality room. It was simply for parents and coaches and other dignitaries. I could see Lafleur through the window. I, I hid my team hat, my team jacket, my team sweater under the bleachers. I snuck in along the side of one of the adults walking in the room, just so I could meet and shake Lafleur's hand. Got caught, got in trouble, but it was worth every second.
16: <laughs> I shook his hand at the CLB about five years ago. I am seated in event. Guy Lafleur and Steve Shutt were the guests of honor. Here I am at the head table, in between. Guy Lafleur and Steve Shutt. You were Jacques Lemaire for the night. <laughs> oh my gosh, I tell you that. Like, that was just unbelievable for me as one of the highlights of my uh, of life, not just working life, but my entire life. But Steve Shutt told us quite a funny story. Scotty Bowman, of course, the coach of Montreal back then, and very organized, disciplined kind of a coach, trying to run the power play, saying, OK, you have to be here, here's your positions, you patrol this wing, you do this, you do that. Anyway, about ten every time, about 10 seconds into the drill. Off goes Lafleur. Totally improvising, not being where he's supposed to be. That's why he was one of the most exciting players you'll ever see. And that genre, I think uh, would have been Lafleur and Gilbert Perrault, the two most individually exciting players in the game uh, of that time. Uh, and Bowman would jump up and down and curse a blue streak. Lafleur, get over here! <laughs> but that was Guy Lafleur.
0: Hard to write in one of the game's greats. You know, the the storied franchise that's won 24 cups. There's 59 players, makes up the Ring of Honor at the Bell Centre, but then if you listen to Red Fisher, the three
16: greatest Habs of all time, the Gros-Bill, Jean Béliveau, Maurice Richard, and Guy Lafleur. Pretty difficult to argue with that selection, I say. Uh, and of course, we remember that goal that he scored against uh, Boston. That was their last of the four Stanley Cups in 1979. And they were down and out. They're trading by two goals with just a few minutes left. It didn't look good against the Boston Bruins in that semi-final. And then Lafleur went to work and La Mer, And boy, that Uh, still see that tying goal in what, less than a minute left, coming down the right wing. Mm -hmm. uh, Lemaire drops it back to him, and Lafleur hammers it past Gilles Gilbert. Uh, That ties it, and then Lambert wins it in overtime. They go on against the Rangers and dispose of them five games, and that was it for their cup run. Great stuff, Brian. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, sir. Right, you are.
0: Take care of Brian Medor from the VOCM newsroom. Great hockey fan that he is. And of course, that, that goal, everyone can picture that. The Lamer drop pass to LaFleur slapshot scores, ties it up. You know, that streak of blonde hair. Anyway, some great memories. All right. Uh, big thanks for everyone who supports the program. That's all the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters. You're all right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VOCM's and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.